to Gladiatrix. I am woman, and hear me roar. Welcome to Gladiatrix. I am your host, Malini Sarma. Every week, I will be speaking with women from all over the world who will be sharing their journeys, their stories about overcoming their fears and achieving great things that they thought they never could. So if you don't want to miss a story, make sure you subscribe. Before we talk about today's show, I would like to say thank you to all my guests who have been featured on the Gladiatrix podcast to date. I have a dream. There are 193 countries in the United Nations, and I have a dream that I can host at least one woman from every country in the world on this podcast. That is 193 countries, 193 stories, and 193 shows. So if you know of somebody who should be featured on the show, please drop me a note. I would really appreciate it. In today's episode, we're speaking with Kiran Munral. Kiran is a best-selling, award-winning author from India. She's also a feminist, a TEDx speaker, a columnist, and a mentor. While Kiran has written over 10 books, what is interesting is that no two books are from the same genre. Her latest TEDx talk talks about boredom, being the new disruptor leading to creativity and innovation. This is that story. Hi, Kiran. Thank you so much for joining the show today. I'm really excited to have you on because your story is quite fascinating. So I'm really happy to have you on today. Thanks for inviting me, Malini. I'm so glad you invited me and it's an honor and a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. So I have um, kind of read up on your bio. You know, I've talked to you before. Um, I saw some of the books that you've uh, written. So you were born and raised in Mumbai, and your mother is one of your very strong role models. Um, so growing up, what were some of the experiences that kind of you know shaped your upbringing? You know, Malini, I grew up in Mumbai, which was then Bombay all those decades ago. And it is a very cosmopolitan city. So I think one grows up in a position of privilege because it isn't quite as much of a struggle as it is for the rest of uh, the young girls in different parts of the country. So uh, I did, uh, you know, go to school, go into college, everything. And I never really realized the kind of pressures that women do face in other parts of the country to just get an education or to be allowed to step out of the house or to, you know, do what they want with their lives because that was never an issue. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think uh, what, were the, uh, what were some of the experiences that shaped my upbringing? I think I was very lucky to have a very... Uh, I think one of the earliest feminists I knew was my father. Mm-hmm. So uh, he, I lost him when I was very young, when I was nine. Mm-hmm. But he was the one who brought me up uh, as a son. I don't know whether that was a conscious thing because I was an only child or whether he was genuinely, you know, mm-hmm. sort of uh, <laughs> pushing the envelope on how you brought up a girl back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was the early 1970s. So uh, I was in jeans and shorts and t-shirts all the time I had a boy crop I played cricket I flew kites I jumped walls 
he taught me how to box, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't uh, at any point that I thought to myself that, you know, you're a girl, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, luckily for me, my mother was pretty much the same. She was quite happy to let me be and I never really got into the kitchen or did any domestic chores. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which turned out to be a bit of a problem when I grew up because <laughs> I still am an absolute dad in the kitchen or taking care of the house. That's some, that's a life skill that, you know, unfortunately I never picked up. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was quite an unconventional upbringing uh, in that sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were quite content to let me be and to let me read and let me do what I wanted. Mm-hmm. So I was blessed in that, I think. Okay. So you have um, you you had the freedom to choose what you wanted to do or what you wanted to study or how you wanted to you know um, what whatever you wanted to pursue was kind of you were given a kind of a free reign. Absolutely, and that was a blessing because uh, you know how it is, Malini. Once you get to a certain age, the parents. I uh, I would like to uh, talk about the girl who topped my batch in college. Mm-hmm. She was married off. Mm-hmm. immediately mm-hmm. and uh, in, there was nothing like the option of a career for her mm-hmm. so in that sense I think I was quite blessed that my mother really didn't uh, pressurize me into thinking about you know you are you going to get married you have to get married now and what mm-hmm. is this career and journalism mm-hmm. isn't for girls you mm-hmm. keep order us and all that kind of pressure never really bogged me down mm-hmm. I was free to do what I wanted and uh, free to make my own mistakes as well. So, <laughs> and, and, fl- yeah, that that's really important. Making being able to have the freedom to make your own mistakes. Absolutely. So I, um, a lot many things you think back in retrospect, and you think, Mom, you should have, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kicked me a little harder, pushed me a little harder, let me. Uh, uh, I dropped out of quite a number of courses. I joined them. I dropped out. I have this amazingly terrible low bottom threshold so I don't <laughs> end up not completing anything and in, in retrospect I think more you should have pushed me harder but what the hell I was a grown child mm-hmm. and she let me make my mistakes mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you went when you decided because you you love writing and you love words and so when you went to college what were you studying how, how did you end up in journalism because you were you were not you didn't go to school to become a journalist did you no, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, back then, it wasn't uh, journalism as a course wasn't something that, you know, people went into because you just drifted into journalism. There were courses, of course. There were St. Mm-hmm. Xavier's. There was mm-hmm. Sophia College. There were courses that taught you journalism. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I think when I entered college, I took arts because I wanted to get rid of science and maths. Mm-hmm. So that Common was my, story. Common yes. story among lots of us girls. Yeah. And I remember Malini, I had got a pretty decent percentage at that point. Uh, it was uh, distinction and above. And when I chose arts, like uh, I joined the college and I went to submit my form and the professor there looked at it and said, why are you taking arts? You can easily get into science with this. There's no mm-hmm. trouble at all with these mm-hmm. kind of marks. I said, yeah, the marks are fine, but I hate maths and I'm not going to do it again. Mm-hmm. And for a week, there was, uh, the house was like a, you know, morning house with mm-hmm. people coming in and giving the condolences. <laughs> why did you let her take arts? <laughs> what will she do arts? It's a great percentage of the arts kick Sorry, what will she do with arts? There's no scope in arts. 
she you know they just couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that uh, somebody could get that much and then opt to mm-hmm. go in for arts and not take science but mom was pretty cool about it and mm-hmm. uh, she said do what you want and even in arts there was no kind of pressure to you know do what would be uh, possibly lucrative in terms of earning an income later that mm-hmm. maybe psychology or economics or something mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. she was quite happy to let me go fly free and take literature which was absolutely the most unlucrative option of it all mm-hmm. so i made majored with a ba honors in literature english literature mm-hmm. and uh, after that i just sort of you know manly just got into uh, i was always freelance writing for various publications while i was still at college mm-hmm. so i just moved into uh, writing for them and then i when there was an opening you know i heard about it and people were kind enough to give me a chance and that's how i got my first jobs mm. and that's how it all happened it wasn't uh, you know it wasn't something i planned but i just right. kept writing mm-hmm. so, so that was your constant yeah your mm. your your writing was your constant it didn't matter what kind of medium but that was Absolutely. your constant okay so you you were you you're like women in media and i think at that time there weren't um there were a handful but probably not as many right um mm-hmm. you know, when you are and, and i think you worked for quite a few publications um would you have uh, a mentor that you kind of that kind of took you by the hand and said you know this is how you should do or were you like a group of women that kind of you know fed off of each other and helped each other out uh, what what was it like being in women in media at that time um how what was it like being women in, of course there were a lot of very feisty women in media at that time it mm-hmm. wasn't like i was so one of the pioneers there were wonderful uh, very strong very brave journalists doing uh, groundbreaking and uh, investigative work mm-hmm. and one wanted to emulate them and follow in their footsteps but i think i was a bit of a cowardly custard and i ended mm-hmm. up you know doing soft features and also mm-hmm. um i i don't know i was more inclined towards the features part of it rather than the news journalism and the grittiness of news journalism mm-hmm. how did it work there were a lot of mentors of course there was rolf emmer who was then the editor of filmfare uh, who got me uh, started free, into freelancing for saturday times and sunday review mm-hmm. at the times of india there was satya saran who was the editor of femina very kindly uh, would assign me a college student articles to write and publish my short stories at the time i was still in college back then mm-hmm. and i remember i didn't have computer at home and she would allow me to come into the office and sit at one of the computers there mm-hmm. banishing one of the staffers mm-hmm. who would you know look at me very angrily at the all the time i would be at the <laughs> to let me just key out my stories mm-hmm. uh Uh, it was a kindness i will never forget and of course there were other uh, mentors as well along the line but uh, i think uh, what really uh, was a great influence was when i joined the asian age it was mm-hmm. just being set up mm-hmm. and there were there was a newsroom there of young feisty fierce young journalists who were just starting out fire in their bellies and uh, it was a wonderful experience it was a wonderful experience working there we all wanted to prove ourselves we want all wanted to do great work we all wanted to you know have our bylines out there and i think that was a very defining experience for me so was that journalist. was that mainly women or were they men and women and they kind of supported each other 
There were men and women, but uh, I think my clan sort of happened with all the newbies of uh, the women journalists who joined up then. Mm. I think there were four or five of us and uh, we bonded and it was a very, very uh, lovely uh, time that I spent there in that newsroom. Mm-hmm. And so, so what happened after Asian Age? After Asian Age, I went to... For a very short stint to a news channel that never took off and mm-hmm. then I joined the Times of India where I was there for a while mm-hmm. and the Times of India is a wonderful old institution but like every old institution it is like a bureaucratic government set up mm-hmm. you know we actually had a department next to ours which was uh, I forget what it was but they would actually put their heads down and take a nap for the lunch during, <laughs> for the lunch break it was that governmental <laughs> I'm just picturing it in my head. <laughs> they would have little cushions which they would take out from under their butts and put on the, <laughs> their desks and go off to sleep. Like clockwork. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so while it was wonderful and it was great exposure because it was the Times of India and your byline in the Times of India, I was what, 23, 24. You, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's going all over India. It's Everyone knows you and... Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was, uh, after a point of time, I, I did tell you I have a very low bottom threshold and that's what <laughs> happened to me. <laughs> okay. So, so you stayed in Times of India for a while and then and then what happened? I moved to Cosmopolitan. Malini, after the Times of India, I was features editor at Cosmopolitan. Mm-hmm. And uh, in uh, just before I joined the Times of India, I'd gotten married. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, I think uh, that was around the time I decided to try to have a baby and I was having some issues conceiving. So mm-hmm. I decided to take time off to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, focus on conceiving. And then, of course, your offspring came along and mm-hmm. then I never really got back to full-time work. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so did you meet your husband, like, uh, while you were in college? Because I, I was reading somewhere when you were, uh, I think there was some article that they were talking about, um, you know, arranged marriages versus finding your own spouse, and I think there was some discussion. And and you had mentioned she goes, and you had you had mentioned that there was no way you were going to uh, <laughs> be uh, asked to marry somebody whom you never you didn't know because just because the family agreed. What was that? What was that all about? Oh, you know how it is, Malini. You know, you're young, you're pretty attractive, and all the very concerned relatives start uh, sending feelers. They, mm-hmm. You go to a, if, uh, or a function in the family and people make polite inquiries and, mm-hmm. you know, things come along and somebody takes it upon themselves to get you settled because yep. you are this poor, poor child with no yes. father. So they'll yep, be yep, doing yep. a favor to the mm-hmm. universe and mm-hmm. they'll take this up against their good karma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so some... Uh, some proposals, as they say, came my way, and then I was supposed to meet those people. And then uh, I, I think I sort of nixed it. I did meet up with them because, you know, an aunt was insisting or mm-hmm. some friend of my mom's was insisting. But uh, I would be very clear, like, hello, I'm not going to be cooking and cleaning. <laughs> I can't cook to save my life. And uh, like, what I'm, I'm completely... Uh, agnostics don't mm-hmm. please don't expect me to follow any ritual or religion or anything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, i think i pretty much scared them because back then <laughs> feminist feminism was not even a word that word, was used exactly. so mm-hmm. i i never heard back from any of those people <laughs> <laughs> 
you knew what to say to scare them off. <laughs> Absolutely. I had my mother to, she sort of, she was late. She said, you'll find your own partner. She mm-hmm. had found her own partner. So she wasn't really panicking about it. Mm-hmm. So in the last month of college, I, uh, he, my, I met, uh, so to speak, my husband, mm-hmm. but we were in the college together for all those years, but somehow our paths had never crossed. Mm-hmm. And uh, we dated for a while, for around six years, and then we got married mm-hmm. after that. <laughs> okay. So then your mom was happy, I'm sure. I mean, she, there was no issues at that point. Oh, she was pretty cool. She was just very worried because, you know, I hadn't had a boyfriend for all the years that I was in college, and she found that very abnormal. So one fine day, she sat me down and she asked me very sweetly, Hmm. You know, darling, if you don't like boys, you can tell me about it. <laughs> you know, for somebody to, for a mom to ask at that time, I'm just thinking yeah. myself to, that going back to, to even say you don't have a boyfriend, you know, you don't like boys. I mean, that is really, really. Oh, she's uh, super forward. Cool. Yeah, that's really she's forward. Just, I mean, she's so forward thinking. That's amazing. That's it's really super cool. And in fact, I think when I uh, hit my teens, my early teens, she handed me a book, mm-hmm. everything you wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask. And she said, read it. Wow. And so I read it mm-hmm. from cover to cover. Mm-hmm. And it was a very, very scientific, very, uh, you know, it was, a <laughs> there was nothing erotic about that book. Mm-hmm. So I knew technicalities about everything. Everything. <laughs> I wish I had got that book when I was that age. I think a lot of things, a lot of us at that, you know, found out a lot of things uh, much later. And this is nothing like what they say in the romance novels or in the movies. It's nothing like that. So So, uh, I ended up having a very cut and dried approach to everything. And even (laughs) now when my son is a teenager, I'm explaining things to him in a very cut and dried manner. So (laughs) I don't think he quite likes me for removing all the fun from everything. Did you give him the book too? Oh, no, unfortunately, no. I think the book uh, was loaned out to my niece after that. Okay. And I never got back. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, so, so after basically after you got married and then you you had your son, you you pretty much stayed home. You didn't go back into corporate, but then you started, uh, you were kind of dabbling and writing, but then you seriously started writing only recently, like probably about 10 years Um, ago. No, actually, Marley, that's not what happened. When I, I quit to have my son, my husband was also quitting. He he was with LG Electronics and he quit to set up an advertising agency. Okay. So I joined up with him in terms of, you know, handling the creative department of the agency. So mm-hmm. I was handling that mm-hmm. for quite a long time, even through, uh, all through the time my son was uh, little. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't, uh, you know, a full-time, I mean, it was our own agency. So it was something I did and uh, pretty, I mean, I was at work every day. But, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't really count that as corporate work experience because it was my own thing. Right. You had the freedom to come and go and do what you needed to do. Okay. Do. And uh, then we shut the agency down, after which I joined up, uh, I began remote working. Mm-hmm. So I worked with Gartner Iconoculture US as an India lead for transport uh, for around six years mm-hmm. in transporting. I did some research work. I was always freelance writing. So writing continued, mm-hmm. but uh, it it wasn't, uh, you know, for any specific organization. I was freelancing mm-hmm. and uh, doing a lot of writing in the, uh, across, you know, 
across mediums, like mm. uh, there was corporate writing, brochures, press releases, that kind of writing. Mm. There was feature writing, there was web writing. And I did start blogging as well okay. during that interval. Okay. When, you, when your son was little, right? When he was little, yeah. Okay. So that entire uh, 10 years, I would say, I spent uh, doing my riyas for my books. <laughs> okay. Yep. They, they always say everything that you do is a, is a practice for the next big project. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the blogs became my practice for my next big project because mm-hmm. the blogs were the ones that got me the readership mm-hmm. and the, um, I, I, I don't know how to, what to call it, but, you know, I got people knowing, people knew about me. Mm-hmm. And they knew, were familiar with my style of writing. And when I was finally ready and I wrote my first book, I had already made a uh, cheerleading base, mm-hmm. which is the first book on all my readers of my blog. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So you, you'd already built a fan base. Um, and that's how, that, that's how actually how I met you. Cause my sister and you are big uh, <laughs> bloggers. And then, cause when, when I was asking her, she goes, you have to talk to Karen. She is just, and I, I'm like, Oh, so how do you know her? And she goes, Oh, I haven't met half the people that I keep talking about because I just, I read all, we're all big bloggers and we just like talk, you know, read each other's stuff and we have our own styles and we really appreciate how, you know, all of us uh, uh, write. So, yeah. I have I mean, a very interesting story about your sister. Oh, yeah, please tell me. <laughs> so, I lived in this complex in uh, Malad. It's a gated suburban complex. And there mm-hmm. was this little boy who would come down every evening with them, with his maid. And he would be playing and my son would play with him. And he was tinier than my son. Mm-hmm. And I would play with him. I would call him Gunda mm-hmm. very affectionately. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, one day... His mom came down mm-hmm. and she was this very pretty girl with, uh, you know, lovely eyes and she was hugely pregnant. Mm-hmm. And she's, uh, she came down and she said, are you Kiran? I mm-hmm. said, yes, I am. But my son calls you Kunda auntie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I read your blog. And that's how she recognized me because I think it was a picture of my son on my blog or my picture or something. And she suddenly realized this Kunda auntie her son had been talking about all this time was me, the blogger. <laughs> Small yes. world, right? You don't even realize yeah. who your readers are and how close Absolutely. they are. Yeah. Absolutely. So that was uh, how I met Maya. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. So, so when did when did you uh, when was your first book published? Like ten years ago? It was December two thousand eleven. Okay, it was published in December two thousand eleven. So I think next year I will celebrate ten years of being a published author. Wow! <laughs> Congratulations. That's been I mean, it's a decade of writing. That's I mean, not not a decade of writing for you, but a decade of writing for books. So, yes. yeah. so, so then um, once you started uh, the first book, because I, I think in your case you have. Uh, every I think there I don't think there's any two books of yours that are in the same genre mm. is there I mean I, I was looking through some of the topics but you you write in multiple genres it's not like you stick to one is that your threshold boredom threshold that forces you to do that absolutely I think I don't think I can write on the same theme or same in the same genre twice uh, there may be similarities in the sense I may write humor, I may like write chiclet, I may write romance, but there'll always be something a little different from the previous book. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
there may be horror, there may be a psychological thriller, but it won't be the same thing. I can't, you know, write on the same thing over and over again. And I have great admiration for those who do and stick to their genres. It makes me very difficult to, you know, mm-hmm. market. I, I'm sure my publishers are all tearing their hair out <laughs> because I don't go on any shelf and the readers, they just don't know what Kiran is going to come up with next. I mean, mm-hmm. will this be a nice, happy go lucky romance or will this be something that will scare the... Mm-hmm whatever out of me <laughs> so. and that's a that's a very interesting um position to be in because i think like you said most authors tend to stick to one genre and so people kind of expect okay we know what the next book is but in your case you have a different genre or you don't know so how how does that process come about where you decide or to do the characters just pop in your head and then you start you know it develops and then it comes into a book i mean how does that process, how does it come about and how long does it take? It's different for different books, Mali. But you know, for instance, the first book that I did, The Reluctant Detective, that's a very funny, humorous take on a suburban housewife. And I think I drew a lot from my own, uh, the, the space I was in at that point. Mm-hmm. I was a suburban housewife living in a gated complex. And everything I wrote about was what I was seeing around me. And even the location where things happen, like she finds a dead body and things like that. It was all around me. So I just drew from experience. Mm-hmm. And that book happened very quickly. I wrote it in a very uh, embarrassingly short time. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it came out and uh, there I was, a published author. And the next book, so I think I, I went with the character. I uh, the characters come to my head first. It's always this uh, protagonist who will pop up fully formed in my head and say, "Write me." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd like to think of it that way, unless I can visualize my protagonist completely, flesh and blood, mm-hmm. and with all her her. I say because all my protagonists have been women so far. Okay, I think unless that's a feminist the- in you that makes that happen. No, it's. I think it's a lack of uh, competency as a writer. I should be able to write both genders equally. Okay. That I need to work on that. Okay. <laughs> so uh, once that is in my head, that person is in my head, then I have to sit and write the story. So some stories don't take very long. They might take uh, some months. Some stories might take years. For instance, The Face of the Window and Missing Presumed Dead, which are very, both very dark books, and the forthcoming More Things in Heaven and Earth. They've all taken like four years, three years, four years to write. Okay. The shorter books, Once Upon a Crush and All Aboard, have taken 
maybe five months, six months, mm-hmm. or whatever. So mm-hmm. it, it just depends on the genre and the kind of book. And uh, the non-fictions uh, they take their own sweet time. Like the one I'm working on right now is a non-fiction, a commission non-fiction on thirty most uh, iconic women of India. That's oh, taking nice. a lot of time. Yes, because the, all the research, research, yeah. the research, and trying to get interviews mm-hmm. with some of the women, and uh, that's taking a lot of time. Okay, so it just depends on the kind of book. So, do you write um, multiple genres at the same time? Because some of your books are taking four years, and some are taking six months. So, do you write like a chiclet kind of thing in between, just to kind of get your head off of you know the heavy stuff, or do you wait until you finish one before you do the other? No. I am writing parallelly. Okay, so you are, yeah, yeah, yeah. That low bottom threshold. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, let's try something different. So, yeah, and it probably helps also with the building of the character and the story building, right? Moving from one thing and then coming back gives you more perspective. I don't know. I wish I had the kind of focus to stay with one story, mm-hmm. but I, I bore myself if I'm sticking to one thing too long. Mm-hmm. And I need to, so if I'm writing something, uh, like I'm doing this book right now, which is very research intensive and very heavy. Mm-hmm. And uh, in between, I just released a book today, uh, an ebook today on raising children in times of uh, climate change and the pandemic, which is mm-hmm. more of a personal essay, mm-hmm. a long essay. Mm-hmm. So uh, I like to vary the pace and the mood and the tone of what I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I like to keep switching back and forth between things. I think it gives you... I like to think, and maybe I flatter myself, that it gives your writing a kind of agility, mm-hmm. kind of fluidity that, you know, otherwise you might be. Because my voice also does change, Malini. My mm-hmm. voice in the chiclets and the humor books are very is very different from the voice in my more serious books. Mm-hmm. So I think it's like an exercise for me. It's a limbering up. It's a workout to keep going back and forth. No, I think I think that's good. It kind of exercises that writing muscle, right? So you're doing different <laughs> things. <laughs> so, so you said your 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 latest project is your writing about the iconic women of India. Is, you said that is a commission project. It's a commission project. Okay. Yes. When do you expect that to come out? Is that or is that a long term? Uh, oh, I'm still writing it, <laughs> so it's going to take some time. Okay. Yeah, yeah a, a, a couple of years, or is it like something that we can expect to see next year? Yeah, yeah, next year, next year. Okay. I hope so. Yeah, I should be done with it in the next couple of months. Okay, that's, that's pretty cool. Production. So looking back, I mean, you know, so far at your journey, you started writing, you were a journalist, you've kind of been in that writing field the whole time. Now you're a published author, you know, one of probably one of the most prolific writers in India because you write in so many different genres. Is there anything, knowing what you know now, you know, is there anything that you would have told your younger self or anything that you would have changed about yourself? I would have told my younger self that you are perfect. Please don't agonize about the way you look or that thinking that you're fat and you're ugly and you're not enough because Mm -hmm. you're fine. Mm -hmm. Please don't let all these expectations of what you're supposed to be like weigh you down. Mm -hmm. And uh, know that you are good at what you do. Don't keep doubting yourself too much. I was always too hesitant about myself, always too 
oh, you know, embarrassed to put myself out there. Mm-hmm. I still am. It's a fatal flaw. I'm learning how to push myself. I'm really mm-hmm. learning. The day I have a book launch like today, mm-hmm. uh, to put uh, it out there and to talk about my work is something that, you know, I find very difficult, but it's a necessary evil and I have to do it. So mm-hmm. I think I would have told myself to be more confident about my abilities. Mm. And to trust myself. I think uh, as women, we are always taught to not take up space, mm-hmm. you know, is it either physically or, you know, virtually, so to speak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Take um, up space, I would have told her. Yeah. So take up the space, right? Put put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you also You also gave a TED Talk, didn't you? I did. I did. I've given a t- uh, couple, yeah. Okay, and then how did how did that go? How how did that how did that come about? Mm, the first one was an invitation from IIT Roorkee. Okay, and uh, it was uh, very strange because it came and then they sort of went to sleep, and uh, I agreed to it. And then I was waiting for a confirmation, and thing came through, and they assumed it's in the confirmation. So, like a week before that, uh, they messaged uh, they mailed in saying uh, what about your travel details I said hello mm-hmm. <laughs> are we on <laughs> so, and it was also a very hectic week because I had multiple events and conferences so mm-hmm. I ended up uh, traveling from Bombay to Delhi for another conference and then the next morning from Delhi to Roorkee and traveling back from Roorkee that's the very same night back to Bombay mm-hmm. so that's Roorkee to Delhi to Bombay in the same night and wow so that was my first TED Talk. Mm-hmm. What, what was the topic about? The topic about was about surrendering to your muse. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, it's something that most creative people would understand that you know, uh, we do push ourselves to write, to produce, to be creative. But it's only discipline and it's only letting the muse work through you that will really get the good stuff out. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just, you know, pouring from the same well that everyone's pouring from. Right. Yeah. And your second TED Talk, where was that? That was an online one that just happened uh, a few days ago. The video is not yet up. It's, okay. uh, it was about uh, boredom and how to embrace boredom for, you know, for creativity to truly come true because mm-hmm. we're constantly filling ourselves with uh, information with doing stuff with being busy with being on social media so mm-hmm. the subconscious is totally taken over and where this creativity spring from it does spring from the subconscious right so un- unless we allow ourselves that space and that vacuum to let the subconscious come forth mm-hmm. then we're not going to be creative mm-hmm. we're not going to be innovative mm-hmm. okay nope and I, and I think that's valid um, I can, I can totally see that. So I, I'd be, I'd be, um, um, uh, please do share the link once it does come out. Um, I'd be, I, uh, I'm, I'm a huge, uh, Ted, uh, I'm a fan, <laughs> Ted fan. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm always looking for topics to, to, to listen to. Definitely. I'll do that. So, um, actually one, one last question I had for you was you're, uh, raising, you have, you have one child, you have a son and you kind of just, you know, you had the, the privilege and the freedom um, to chase your dreams, do what you needed to do, fall on your flat on your face, make your own mistakes, um, you know, figure out what your niche is and work your way through that. 
what would you want to tell your son? You know, he's watching you as, as, as you are doing your thing and you kind of always spoken your truth. So what do you want him to learn from you? That's a very interesting question, Molly. I have never really thought about what I would want him to learn from me. Mm -hmm. I would like him to find his own truth mm -hmm. and to stay true to that truth, whatever it is. I would like him to know that, uh, you know, uh, I've raised him in a way that uh, he can sometimes tell me, Mom, you're being sexist, you're being racist, or you're being whatever. So when he calls me out on certain things, subconscious biases that maybe I am not aware of when I'm speaking, mm -hmm. I'm glad of it. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that, you know, he is perceptive enough to call me out and to point out my own flaws to me, spaces where I may myself need to be re-looking at my own attitudes and my own beliefs. I think... Uh, we have been raising, you know, Gloria Steinem said that mm -hmm. wonderfully. We are raising our bo our girls to be more like boys, but we're not raising our boys to be more like girls. Right. So, yeah. So I, I think uh, I, I would be very happy if my son grew up to be a worthy partner of any girl mm -hmm. or any boy, whatever he chooses. That's up to him completely. Mm -hmm. To be a worthy partner in life to whoever he chooses. That's all I hope. Well, I hope he's listening and <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure he'll give you a scorecard too if you asked him. But no, that's I'm great. I'm not going to ask him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but that, that, that's great. But thank you. Thank you so much, Karen. I really appreciate your um, taking the time and um, speaking to me. I'm looking forward to um, the your latest TED Talk. And I've actually ordered your books because my sister actually said, you got to check these out. So I'm like, okay. So I do have them on my reading list. So. Lovely. I hope you do hope you enjoy them. And thank you so much for inviting me for this, Malini. It was lovely chatting with you. Yeah, good talking to you too. Thank you. Thank you, Malini. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. And if you love the show, please leave a review. Just remember, you could be one story away from being inspired.